Hello, welcome to episode 121 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. It's been a while since we last talked. How are you lot doing? A lot's been happening since episode 120 back in November 2018, including me and my wife moving back to London from Bristol. I mean, I say London, but it's actually Walthamstow, which is almost the countryside. Taking the break from releasing new episodes also coincided with the end of the funding I was receiving from Arts Council England. So one last thank you to them for their support. This means I've gone back to my previous life as a joiner and furniture maker. And if you like early 20th century modernist furniture made from curved plywood, then check out the company I work for, Isocom Plus. I mentioned the move and going back to full-time work as it's relevant to the shape that the podcast will take in the future. Realistically, I'm only going to have time to release episodes quarterly. I might be able to turn around some shorter bonus episodes, but I think a new one every four months is what I can manage around life, work and my own writing without it becoming a burden. I hope that while I've been away, you've all been supporting and listening to our companion podcast, A Poem A Week, produced by my wife Lizzie, in which poets read their own poems or a favourite by someone else. And if not, you can rectify that straight away, innit? You can find that series wherever you get your podcast or over at our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com, where you can also find a list of over 50 poetry podcasts produced in the UK and Ireland. Also on the website, you can find a full transcript of this episode alongside over 80 more episodes. Link in the episode description. For today's episode, I'm in conversation with experimental poet, performer and artist Astra Papagristadoulou. We met up in Walthamstow last month to chat about the importance of collaboration and the visual look of words on a page in her practice. Astra is pretty determined not to be restricted by conventional definitions of what it is to be a poet, and happily exists on the boundaries of different media, so it was interesting to hear why she's so keen to introduce rules and constraints into her writing. I was actually quite nervous in the build-up to recording as it had been such a long break, but I'm very happy to be making episodes and chatting to you through your phones, tablets and computers again. If you like what you hear, then do me a solid one and tell your friends, family, colleagues, etc. Word of mouth recommendations are still by far the best way for podcasts to reach new listeners. And I say this not for my own benefit, but for all the wonderful guests that are featured on the series. I'll be back at the end of the episode, but for now, here's Astra with a couple of poems. Futano at Morning, 08-24 From Irini's Electric Voltage Railway Station, 99 tubular steel arches anchor 18,600 square meters of sky. The striking light of a young asteroid near the velodrome pedestrian arcade across the pathway at the northern edge, hypnotizing white of mythological sunsets, convulses into striated articulations next to an old metallic sign, Athens 2004. 480-meter-long semi-open promenade landscaped with artificial bodies water fountains and indigenous mechanical tulips, moderate, intense heat, 
From the axis, crackling energies rejuvenate the stillness. The bursting of a giant electric bulb forms primordial sparks. Emerging from the exoskeletal steel spines, a space like Lernernhedra, her vertebra reflected through the main nightlit pool in silver ripples. Exodus. Exit. Isolate Zone. The world is entering a new era. Genesis, apotheosis, atriums of sky, atriums of space, isolate fireballs branching out to a floating eight-level labyrinth. A technopool of values walks beside me. A technopool of values walks on by. A fusion of antithesis, their mimesis mere speed. Echoes of heavy foot traffic and violent raptures. Uh-oh grey in twilight, but silver when moved. In this city, they demand that we obey. And they are right. Work Jao, they say, while pointing their fingers to the staircase. Zatias will respond in astroglossic, with somehow fixed smiles. Captured inside the resilient macro-environments of greyscale buildings, like this one, and that one across, Beyond its palette of repetitive facades, a faint glimmer on the horizon. Hope. We often move along fixed paths set by the sequencer of our bodies, the autocratic clock that organizes all of our shades. Our evolution seems eternal and unchanging, like stellar deaths in autopilot modes. The sky-lit staircase holds echoes of telos, emotional connection and social interaction. Some dead stars fade away, some explode, but in the end, like us, they are mortal. Thank you very much, Astra. Uh, thank you for joining uh, me on the podcast today. I'm going to start off with a question I haven't asked in many years on the podcast. So when mm -hmm. this series first started, long term, listeners will know that the first question in every interview is why poetry? And we stopped asking that because it felt like um, it became too gimmicky, mm -hmm. even though it threw up some really interesting answers. But just knowing a little bit about your work and having chatted to you a bit before, I felt like it was maybe a good start for our conversation. So I just wanted yep. to ask you why poetry? So it's interesting you ask that. So uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but um, I did my BA in theatre studies at Surrey. Well, I've always been fascinated with writing as a child uh, and started writing sort of uh, small one-act plays while I was at high school. We went to the stage, uh, one of them as well at school, which was cool. And when I came to the UK to study theatre, uh, yeah, I had just that fascination for writing and working in a theatre environment in the future. But I just realised that, well, theatre relies a lot on teamwork and, well, you're dependent a lot on the help of others in staging. Uh, and I find enjoying uh, working alone most of the times. So I felt like poetry um, worked for, for me in that way. You know, I can just, I get that inspiration at three o'clock at night, 
you know, I bring my laptop, I write, and it's a solitary activity which you can then share if you want to. Um, you know, with, with collaborations, for example, you, you can't use that writing that you produced alone and, and work alongside someone else and get that, you know, piece of teamwork, which I think is very important. Um, or, you, or you don't, and you can just go and share it by yourself, which is fine either way. But personal preference, I think, yeah, I chose that path because it sort of works for, for me. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about the appeal of being able to work alone, but having seen you almost exclusively perform as part of a collaboration with other mm. people. But I suppose there's, um, there isn't a conflict there, is there? You know, mm. it, it might seem to some people that that's a contradiction, but it, you know, the, the initial work and the initial writing, it's nice to have that freedom to work alone, isn't it? And to yeah. not have the restrictions of having to meet up and be a part of a team. And with collaborations, especially in poetry, I find that it's very rare that people would in intervene with your work. It's usually people bringing their works together and, you know, um, yeah, not really intervening with each other's writing or each other's practice because it, you can't, um, you know, you have a lot of co collaborations with music, with visual arts, etc. So yeah, it feels a bit more organic this way. Um, and especially if you like having control <laughs> over, your, over your work, which I personally like. Yeah. I suppose we'll come on to, uh, I don't want to guide the conversation too much too early, but we may come on to definitions of poetry a bit later on, yeah, right? yeah. and what it means to be a poet and what it means to write poetry. But at this initial phase, if we ignore those sort of like wider questions, yeah. in your own personal work and your own personal practice, do you see yourself as a, a poet that collaborates or do you see yourself rather as an artist that collaborates with other artists and you just happen to have already written poetry? Because the performances I've seen you in aren't, don't seem to be that rooted in uh, a, a regular poetry tradition in this country at least. Mm -hmm. I don't see myself as one thing, to be honest with you. And with each collaboration, uh, you, it's a bit like I have a different facet. Most of the times I see myself as a poet working with someone else. It often uh, happens that I work with people from different disciplines. Uh, like recently, I think one of my performances that you attended at the Poetry Cafe was with two great musicians, Oliver Fox and Sean Tomlin. Yeah, so I would, most of the times I see myself as a poet working with people from different disciplines. But there are times that I act as an artist, especially when it comes to visual poems, because I, I work around visual poetry a lot. And I see it more as art rather than poetry. So when I, for example, take part in exhibitions, I see myself more as an artist than a poet. But yeah, that's the beauty, I think, especially of um, experimental, you know, avant-garde poetry that its definition is just so broad. So you don't have to feel pressured to, you know, squeeze into one box. I've got something else I want to lead on to, but just to, as a follow up question to that, when after you finished your BA, I, uh, at what mm -hmm. point did you find this um, avant-garde uh, slash experimental Seen that because you're quite heavily involved with 
um, collaborative projects with mm-hmm. the same artists and same writers, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of happens naturally to everyone. We all find our own little niche and our, our uh, what do the kids say? You find your tribe on Twitter yeah. or whatever. <laughs> uh, how quickly did you find that? And do you feel like you could have done the same thing within theatre or did it have to happen within poetry? Well, I think a lot of it depended on the tutors that I worked with uh, in both of my degrees. So I really didn't feel that my tutors in theatre connected me to a wider network outside of the university, whereas um, as soon as I joined the MA of Poetic, Poetic Practice at Royal Holloway, um, it was under the um, leadership of uh, Robert Hampson, who is fantastic, by the way. So he was, I think, the key. He was the key who introduced me to people like Stephen Fowler, who I work very re- regularly with, and that network of, you know, avant-garde poets so I don't think I know a lot of poets actually that have stumbled across the scene but it's yeah it's really hard for it to happen organic without someone you know grabbing you by the hand and uh, showing you the ropes and introducing you to this network. Coming back to what you mentioned before about visual poems and how that's a big part of your work as well but I've interviewed quite a few people as part of the series whose visual work is as essential to them as their written work or their performance work. But it's obviously a very hard thing to talk about in an audio mm. medium. So on the podcast, we, we tend to not brush over it, but it's often hard to explain what you mean without just really lengthy descriptions of what a poem might look like on, on the page. But I think it's worth yeah. talking about because I started by reading two fantastic poems from your pamphlet Astropolis through Haverform Press. And they're very, very visual and concrete in style and structure. Mm-hmm. And it would be a shame really to to have any readings and to have that book in the room and not talk about the visual structure in some way. But maybe you could explain what the book is first Mm -hmm. of all and how it came about and then I because I think that might give some insight as to what it looks like I'm thinking that instead because usually when I along with the transcripts that accompany the episode there are always transcripts of the poems but maybe we should um, maybe I should add images instead Mm -hmm. so whoever's listening could also go over to the transcript now and bring up bring up the pdf and then actually see the images of the poems that we're talking about that might be useful that would be great yeah Yeah. thanks i started developing astropolis uh, while i was at the uh, poetic practice course actually Uh, that was my final creative project it's supposed to be uh, songs from a neo-futurist opera and I was inspired by the Italian futurists uh, who I stumbled across while doing the course. They were fascinated with technology and I think that technology today is a very vital part of our lives, um, more than ever. Yeah, I I started researching the the neo-futurist term to see whether there were any echoes of those yeah, of the Italian futurists today. And I didn't really find anything solid uh, in poetry, either a book or someone who 
focus their practice on that particular movement. So Astropolis is really an experiment of visual poems that try to define what neo-futurism is. And although technology plays a very important part of the project, ecology plays just as an important role as technology does, because I think that now with, with climate change, technology can be used in a positive way to try and help reduce some of the ecological damage. And I try to express that notion through responding to smart buildings, so new futures architecture, and each of yeah, so each of the poems um, is trying to embody the structure of that building. So there is a, a a play between architecture and poetry, but it, it is a a project in in progress, and I would like to explore that notion a bit more. Hopefully. We'll start starting a PhD in September. Yay. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, in neo-futurist poetics, I think that would give me that space to explore Astropolis a bit more and hopefully come up with an even larger work of visual poems. One thing that I've noticed through reading your work and seeing your performances is that there's a lot of this sort of imagined and fantasy worlds that you're writing about. And we're not going to talk about space just yet. We're going to, I'm going to save that for the second half. But yeah. was it necessary for Astropolis to have a very real root for each poem that existed in this world in order to talk about what an imagined future might be? Yeah, I think uh, that in order to explore what the future might hold... Uh, you have to look back at the past and the buildings hopefully helped with providing that uh, past element uh, in the work. The book really plays with the past, the present and the future. And yeah, this is one of the elements that I thought might help build that three-dimensional space for the poems. I thought it was a really interesting hook as well to use what are at the moment ultra-modern and brand new buildings, but placing them because the book is written at what point in the future? Uh, so at um, 2092. <laughs> 2092. So they then they become suddenly they become historical artifacts, even though to mm -hmm. us they're ultra modern. It was um, an interesting starting point. So and just as, as a bit of further clarification, each poem uses a different building, doesn't it, from around yeah from around the world at the moment. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that? ecology and the environment play such a big role in the work of avant-garde writers at the moment. It seems to me that environmental issues are reflected far more heavily in the experimental writing that I've seen than in more mainstream stuff. Mm, that's an interesting question, actually. Um, and straight away in my head, I'm just identifying all these really interesting experimental poets who work around ecology like uh, Sarah Cave or Julia uh, Rose Lewis. Probably it's because of the form of experimental poetry, although a lot of these writers don't 
always focus on the visual element, but I do think that the form of concrete poems help, maybe it helps express notions uh, a bit better. Do you think it feeds into also this attraction to collaboration as well? It seems to be not, and I'm very... uh, Becoming highly aware now at the moment, I might be accusing more mainstream poets of something of not either not caring or, and that's not what I'm doing. Um, but I think perhaps through that desire to collaborate with other mm-hmm. artists and be part of a wider community, it's quite natural that it then links your work into thinking about being part of a community. You know, your your mm-hmm. practice itself is not. It's, um, it seems to be with experimental writers that their practice is re- very rarely inward looking, which is quite the mode at the moment it's quite the fashion for more mainstream poetry and um yeah yeah i think uh i agree with you in a sense uh and straight away i'm thinking of the european poetry festival the last one that happened in april and there were quite a few poets that performed collaborative pieces around eco poetry all i'm thinking is vilda valerie bierke torset for example that uh (laughs) literally pulled apart uh, pots of basil, which was quite an interesting image. And yeah, I definitely think that this outward notion of collaboration probably helps target subjects that concerns us all and affect the community, like climate change. That multiplicity of voices, uh, I think is quite beautiful. So yeah, that's probably why you see more eco-poetry in avant-garde poetry at the moment. Maybe. That's just my idea. I think um, now would be a good time for a second reading, actually. So I'm going to read an extract from my New Futurist Manifesto, which was commissioned by Sidekick Books and was developed for their No Robot No anthology, It's amazing. Please go get a copy. Erdians resist. Humans have destroyed more than a third of the natural world over the past three decades. Even though humans are not the principal entities of the planet and as a species are destined to expire, you are the real threat to life on Earth. You dominate your planet, yet hate on each other and complain about pretty much everything. You are breathing kill boxes. Get the hell of planet Earth before it's too late. You won't survive the versions of doom you're bound to inflict on yourselves. It's time to break the pattern. It's time to escape your reality and embrace your own brilliant mechanicity. The damage inflicted by human bodies in the past now floats as scattered muscles, joints and cables across galactic oceans. Make a fresh start while you still can. Your only hope is technology and science, the fantastic products of your own twisted imaginations. Dive in. No second thoughts. An infinite greed of possibilities stands in front of your eyes, shifting as you move through it, because it's alive, like the Chancha Bridge or the Shard. 
and we know that you can't refuse it because the fluid geometry of water in motion is sprouting from your full of excitement mechanical chests. Resource depletion, overpopulation and climate change on Earth, some of the reasons we decided to leave. We took the leap to maximum efficiency and there's no going back. We have no expiration date now. And who are we? You may wonder. We are the neo-futurists. Technology equals natural. Neo-futurism equals escape. The world was our oyster and we devoured it. And how bloody delicious it was. When you venture further afield, you'll find us lying upon holographic astroturf with a cocktail of power in our metallic hands. It is time for you to join the advance of the voracious neo-futurists. Join us by inventing a digital age that abolishes the old anthropocentrism. Embrace this new reality by celebrating smart cities and the age of the neo-human. Celebrate this new reality with us. Your fingers will start to experience a gradual tingling sensation. Wires will plaque your brains, metal will replace your muscles. You will transcend into an analog condition blast of white noise and minimal echo, into the silence of a billion stars, in a place where there's no room for moaning about traffic or taxis. You will finally be free. When the electronic sun is turned off, let it rain upon mechanical tulips with no sound. Your universe will be artificial. Your galaxies will be artificial. Your moon and the stars will explode. Your near future lies within this gravitationally bound system of ecological solutions where the self is no longer at the center of the universe. Look up at the stars, no down at your feet. Breathe with new spirit. The Varnox planet, just 11 light years away, is waiting for you. Far beyond the artificial mountains of Serac, peaks of resin and quartz composite, like arctic icebergs spring out in scorching white. Thank you very oh. much. No Two initial points come into my head there, and because we said we were saving the idea of... Uh, not the idea of space, the reality of space and what exists outside of this planet until the second half. We should uh, start there. As we established um, in the first half of this conversation, or we at least established our own beliefs between the two of us about the pr proliferation of um, ecologically minded poetry within the avant-garde and how we, how these writers, I was going to say we because I put myself in that, the mm -hmm. circle of writers as well but if we're concerned with our place on this planet and amongst other human beings your writing seems to take a leap outside of that atmosphere and consider where we're all sitting in the galaxy and in the wider universe and i was mm -hmm. just wondering whether we should maybe uh as i started the conversation with why poetry maybe we should say why space <laughs> Because I think it's, it's space is the next stage, I suppose, and it is going to happen at some point. Um, 
don't know when, but it is going to happen, you know, moving to exoplanets. And many scientists like Stephen Hawking, for example, he was the one that uh, predicted human race uh, eventually moving to exoplanets, which is quite a fascinating idea, I think. I really wish that we, uh, I lived at this point where, you know, we were packing our bags <laughs> and we were, you know, moving to, to Mars or I, mean, I, I wouldn't mind the, <laughs> the location as soon as it, it, it was this exciting space, um, planet uh, in outer space. I mean, how, how would you feel about moving to space? I, I, do you know what? I, I don't spend that much time thinking about uh, space. I, I got a bit distracted there during your answer. I was at a talk recently about um, hosted by the fantastic writer Isabel Weidner, and mm -hmm. they were talking about how during the 80s, um, splits between different types of literature became um, sort of drawn out via class and education and divide mm -hmm. and how sci-fi was um seen as like a lower form of writing mm -hmm. and how it was deemed sort of like that's what you'd write if you failed at university almost you'd sort of imagine what it was like and coming very much from a working class background it surprised me because I have no interest in sci-fi or anything like that at all but it's also interesting to see to think about how the, those class distinctions within experimental and more mainstream literature as well. I think maybe what I'm concerned with is that I'm I don't I'm not against moving somewhere else. I'm just hoping that we haven't messed things up so much that we have to. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like and it and I suppose it brings up ideas of what utopia might be. Mm -hmm. and whether we've just there's no chance of that now here you know and, whether, yeah. and the only consideration because it does seem also for a lot of experimental writers this idea of imagining some sort of uh, uh yeah well utopia it, mm -hmm. it seems to weigh quite heavily in some people's work you know and that's yeah. sort of maybe reflecting the damage and that's why they're so obsessed with the damage that's happening now to the planet yeah, it's, it's been a po very popular subject. Well, uh, actually, straight away, I'm thinking of Burning House Press and uh, how they recently published an issue edited by Paul Hawkins, which was around the future and space. There were some really lovely contributions, actually, to that issue. But yeah, with the no robot no anthology there is a very big selection uh, of writers out there that um, are concerned with our future i suppose and i don't know whether the political situation at the moment gives you an extra incentive to try and imagine how things will be in the future obviously with my work i've gone far you know you know too far away from uh, the immediate future, you know, that, that's, yeah, that, that is hopefully something that um, in concerns um, a lot of people at the moment and might be interesting for readers out there. The second thing that I was thinking as you were reading that, and whilst I do put myself into the same 
writing tradition as you. Mm-hmm. One thing I've never been able to get my head around is why the avant-garde are so obsessed with manifestos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even using them as a like um, a crux to build an idea around. You know, regardless of whether you believe what you just read is an actual manifesto that you wish people would uh, follow. This idea of being instructive as to how people should think about the the, the way the world around them and it's mm-hmm. it's it's quite strange to i've always found it quite strange this sort of openness and the liberalism that's inherent in experimentation mm-hmm. but then it often quite often comes with a list of instructions yeah and probably because a lot of um conceptual poetry is a series of instructions and i look back at myself and um, the way I produce some of my poetry by setting rules and going out there and following those rules, you know, to the very end. And yeah, that, that's probably why, because uh, yeah, a lot of avant-garde artists do like restricting themselves to a box to be able to then escape it in a way and I'm not speaking for everyone that's probably you know just my experience on it but I love instructions and I like a good manifesto as well um I'm not saying that my manifesto is good but yeah it's it's interesting it's a a, um form of prose that I really enjoy Mm. I mean and you I mean you you definitely see your yeah, the attraction that you have towards sort of constraints within your writing come through from your two pamphlets through Samson Lowe, Almost a Dream and Almost a Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be a natural point to start talking about those two small booklets as well and mm-hmm. how they, I mean, I'm not going to explain your own work to you, but um, maybe you could tell, tell me and the listeners a bit about the form and the structure and what role that uh, musical theory and notation play in how these two booklets were put together? So I would say with both Almost a Dream and Almost a Nightmare, so they are what I call collaged poems. N- not, not all of them necessarily. Uh, like the, the one I read at uh, Poem a Week last week, actually, Heliolatry, it was a bit more language-focused. But a lot of the others, they are comprised of lines uh, which most of the times you know I have googled or have noted down and the restriction that I set around those um, you know to answer your question was so with almost a nightmare I tried to focus around uh, language about the the moonlight sonata the third movement then texts around the Great Fire of London and then um, sexual texts and try to extract language from um, sources uh, that were discussing these three themes and bring them together to create something hopefully unique. Uh, With Almost a Dream, I was a bit more free (laughs) in the process of making them. And uh, although a lot of them are, you know, collaging poems, their their sense of instruction wasn't as um, strong. But I think a great example of what you've just um, said was a book that is going to be published by Guillermo Press in September 
uh, called stargazing and which I have restricted myself to a small window of a set number of lines uh, and the, the whole book is comprised of aperture poems uh, which just fall into a very simple clean square and that's probably yeah, the most restrict you know the most um, restrictions that I have set to myself because usually yeah although I set a list of instructions while creating poetry nothing was you know <laughs> as restricted uh, as restrictive of like these aperture poems um, and so that square that you've decided to restrict yourself to is that a void into into which you're writing into or using that open square to sort of select smaller pieces of writing from a larger body a lot of the writing within that square space is supposed to be part of a larger text and it's a bit like a blackout poem in reverse if that makes sense but metaphorically it's supposed to be a window through which you you watch the sky at night and the way then the stars start to come together and create images so I think the form sort of works with the content because the poems uh, are around the story of Icarus and Daedalus, many of the listeners might um, know about. Yes, yeah, so I, I do think that form helps bring uh, the content alive. In a so way. this next book is sort of your own little poetic telescope, is it? You're scanning the That's the a great way to describe it, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I really like that. I've um, always been uh, attracted to artworks where m the majority of the work is obscured. Mm-hmm and that you can only view parts at a time. But it's quite interesting, this point also, I suppose that's ultimately where the whole conversation is revolving to. It's nice that it's come up at this point in that how much of your work is informed by the form of it as well. Mm -hmm. And that it's not just, um, it's not only a very interesting way to, to display the work at the end, but it's a vital part of the construction of the work as well. Yes, 100%. I think um, form for me, sometimes it's even more important than content. Uh, and I don't, maybe it's because I have an inclination towards visual art. Not an inclination, it's not really the right word, but probably a taste for visual art and the aesthetics of poetry is very important for me. So I usually try and marry the those two flavors of form and content but it's nice to come across uh, a person's work who clearly is happy to live on the boundaries and intersections of two ways of working and not being afraid of you, know, uh, you hear a lot about a lot from artists about not wanting to be pigeonholed necessarily as doing mm -hmm. one thing or the other but it's that's not quite the same thing as being happy to live in the gaps between as well yes. and I think and because I think sometimes that can be considered as an, a negative view of your work or a negative mm -hmm. interpretation of, of somebody's work but it's quite nice when you s see people fully embrace it like you do with your work it's it's visual and it's literary and it's performance and it is just what comes out at the end is what it is and you sort of, and it's nice to see you stand by it and be quite proud of what it is at the end of it 
Thank you. Yes, for me, it's uh, very, very important to keep yourself open um, to things. And um, I think that uh, with the um, restriction of performing visual poems, um, you know, in your question that uh, popped out in my head straight away, you know, some people may be wary of creating visual pieces, uh, you know, if they're strong performers. And um, I, th I think that uh, that freedom of expression sometimes opens doors uh, that you didn't know existed. And for example, what I found with visual, my visual work, uh, well, at first, my worry was how do I perform these? You know, at the launch of um, Astropolis last year, actually it was exactly last year to the day, I think, uh, at the Peckham Pelican. My worry was how do I perform these poems? Um, I have to fill, you know, 15 minutes reading slots and how do I do that? And that opened a whole door of me thinking of creating object poems and bringing those on stage. So rather than me trying to extract some of the lines from the visual poem, which wouldn't really work because the form was just as important uh, as the content for those poems, then it opened that door for me to think of object poetry and yeah, the use of props to be able to create that same aesthetic that you were trying to portray uh, on the page. So yeah, I would definitely encourage people to think of form as well, because it's quite liberating. It's something I've been thinking about a lot with my own writing as well, is mm -hmm. how to sort of embrace the contradictions in what I think about, you know, because it, it's quite interesting to in the last 10 or 15 minutes here, you talk about your love for instructions and constraints and finish by talking about freedom to use props and do whatever yeah. you want. And I, But I think it's I, I think it's nice to uh, come to a point where you realise that these contradictions are integral to what you do. You know, I think I've spent mm. a lot of my writing trying to defi define one way or, that I think about things and that just isn't true. That isn't how... I live my life I don't have one way of thinking about anything in life I don't know why yeah. it should be part of the way I write as well um I'm not gonna say too much more because I'm gonna end up plugging my own writing and that's not what I'm here for but um I think unfortunately we've come to the end of the conversation we thank you so much for um joining me it's been really fascinating to chat well yes it has been and thank you so much for the invitation it's no, been great no, it's brilliant. <laughs> we're gonna finish with a third and final reading mm-hmm so uh, since we've been talking about uh, restrictions in writing and we mentioned uh, Stargazing, which is going to be out by Guillermo Press in September, I thought I might share with you some of the poems from the book. Same Spectrum Another 2am in a still Aegean An invisible nothing spreads its prison of light that shrouds Eve Ever dark ripples and echoes of shoveling buckets of stars can sometimes protrude screams of to sleep or not to sleep. My mind is verse without beginning or end and governed by definite laws while the skies suddenly turn on. 
Afroflight. Shining through the night sky, Meteor Icarusis and diving godlings in the cluster shadows of insomnia binds matter together, growing black hole gardens in, growing starman garments in, my concrete balcony whilst fighting the holly in rhythmic pulsations through the naked eye, torture comes and torture goes. again you stuck with us to the end grab yourself a biscuit as a reward or a cookie or whatever that was the wonderful Astra Papakristadulu do yourself a favour and go see her perform if you get the chance or at the very least check her out on YouTube and if you'd like to get yourself one of her pamphlets then you can buy Astropolis from Haverform Press both almost a nightmare and almost a dream through Samson Lowe. And as you heard at the end there, her latest will be Stargazing out through Guillemot Press later this year. Astra has a fantastic page on her website dedicated to publication, so I'll link to that in the episode description. And I'll also link to the next couple of things I'm going to mention. As we're talking of experimental poetry pamphlets, my wife Lizzie and I have just published a collection of 10 poems by me and 10 accompanying illustrations by her. It's called 10 Cups of Coffee. And you can get yourself a copy through Hester Glock Press. If it's of interest, I was recently interviewed by Naomi Waddis for her show The Two of Us, in which she talks to writers and artists about how they manage their mental health. We chatted mainly about how writing poetry and producing this podcast both impact and help my mental well-being. I really enjoyed the chat, but I think I will always remain too embarrassed to listen to the recording. So you can do that for me and let me know what you think. I think that's it for episode 121. You can continue to follow us on our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com, at lunarpoetrypodcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at silent underscore tongue and at a poem a week on Twitter. Until episode 122 and the autumn, be good to yourself.